0: All right. if you have a copy of God's Word and you want to open to Ephesians chapter 5, you can do so beginning at verse 21. And this morning we continue going through the book of Ephesians. And we just, uh, one of the reasons we preach through books of the Bible like this for the steady diet of our church, although at times we do take topical series as well, is so that we submit ourselves to the whole counsel of God. And so this morning we come to a, a difficult text to preach on, to preach through, to look at. Maybe for some of you even to believe or to accept. For others of you it, it may be a matter of confusion. For some of you it may be a matter where you feel condemnation. But we believe that all of God's word is good for all of God's people. It's profitable for us. And so we're going to look today, continuing into, to think about how the gospel applies in all of life to all the church to all people, places, and times through the book of Ephesians. And we're looking at marriage. So a couple weeks ago, we looked at just sexuality and gender and talked about that in view of the gospel. Last week, we skipped ahead to verses 31 to 33 instead of going directly to the, to the roles of men and women within marriage, husbands and wives, because we wanted to really lay a big foundation for this. Because a lot of times what we want is we want somebody just to tell us what to do or what not to do. And I'm not gonna, we're not going to really do that. So if you're the type of person who's like, just tell me what to do. Give me a list. We, we really want to lean into the wisdom of the gospel instead of giving people lists of things to do beyond what the Bible says. That's legalism. A legalist is not merely someone who says, you obey these laws to get to heaven. A legalist is someone who makes an extra law to protect the word of God. So if this is what God's word says, they say, well, if we really want to protect this, then we're going to add a law. And so we don't want to do that. We just want to say what Jesus says, no more or no less. And we'll do our best to do that in view of this. But as always, want to encourage you guys to study these things for yourselves. Right? The, Paul said to the, that the Thessalonians were more noble than the Thessalonicans because they went to study the scriptures to see if the things he taught were true. And I want us to have that culture in our church. That you don't even merely just take what I say at face value, but you go and you submit it to God's word. So Ephesians 5, we'll begin reading verse 21. Submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its savior. In the same way husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church. Because we are members of his body. Let's hear these words again that we looked at last week. Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife. And the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word, and we pray now that you would add your blessing to the reading of it. We pray that today you would submit our hearts, all of us, husbands, wives, singles, those who've who've lost spouses whether to death or to divorce, those who are confused when it comes to what texts like these mean for them and their season of life. God, we just we just come to you with open hands, asking that you would guide us, that you would humble us where we need to be humbled, that you would challenge us where we need to be challenged. And we pray that in all these things that Jesus would be exalted as The star, not only of our marriages, but the star of every story in our lives. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. In Ephesians chapter 5, we see this beautiful picture of the dance of marriage. And so I had a very weird encounter uh, not long ago at AutoZone, down in Little Chatsworth, Georgia. So if you know, that's where I'm from, from this small town. And I went up, our van broke down, as it often does. And so as I was going into AutoZone to get whatever little part that I needed, there was this, this big, burly guy behind the counter with this huge beard, like down to here, the shaved head. You know, this guy looked tough. Tattoos, AutoZone worker. And as I was getting my part, he looked at me, and he said, Hey, did you used to dance? And I was thinking, what in the world is he talking about? And then I remembered. This was a surprise, y'all. It surprised me. That when I was in middle school, I went through a dancing phase. <laughs> and so, this is embarrassing, but for the sake of this sermon, I'm telling you this. So I, was, I, always, I went through phases. Just ask my wife. I can still be a thing, a phase person. So I went through this phase where I was in middle school, where I was wearing the shorts down to here with all these designs on them. And at the middle school dances, I had three other friends who were older than me, so that made me feel especially cool, who were the ones out in the middle of the dance floor doing all the boys to men, Belle, Biv, Devoe dances. And so this guy somehow remembered this. And, he, and I said, he said, I remember one time we were at the skating rink in Dalton, and every, we really thought we could dance until you showed up. <laughs> now, my brothers are standing here beside me in this auto zone, and this is extremely embarrassing, <laughs> first of all but especially it would be supr- extremely shocking probably to most of you and to anybody that knows me. Why? Because I'm the guy when you go to a wedding and everybody's out there having fun, I'm like the one wanting, sitting at the table, gripping my chair, saying there is no way that you're going to get me up and out there to dance. Now I'm trying to come out of this, trying to grow in this, Tried to at uh, a family meal we had recently. It's because I just I want to do it. But I don't want to do it. I was at a wedding recently, and the, the Sam and Emma, you know who were here last week, and they were just all out here dancing and having this wonderful time. But the part that really stood out to me is when all of a sudden Sam's parents, this, this super farmer guy and her just take off down the middle two-stepping together. Because that's just what they did every Friday night and Saturday night growing up, is that's what they did. They went out and they had fun, and they danced, and it was so beautiful. It was like their feet were moving attached to strings. He would twirl her and she would duck in perfect rhythm. And you knew that this didn't happen just immediately. If, I, if me and Cassie were to try to do that, it would be probably somebody would get hurt very quickly. But they had did this many times. They had practice. They had patience. And they had a partner who knew the other's strengths, who knew the other's weaknesses, one who was willing to follow, one who was willing to lead. And it really was beautiful. And if any of you in here have ever seen two people dance together who can really know what they're doing, it is a beautiful thing. But when it comes to verses like we've read today and we think of marriage, We often don't think, read these verses and think, wow, what a beautiful dance the Lord has designed in marriage. Instead, we think of a few other things, maybe. We think of domineering abuse. We think of demanding nagging. We think of people competing for time. We think of people competing for their vision. But if we're going to follow Jesus into the stuff of everyday life, then we have got to to do justice to what these things have to say. Yeah, Kaylee, get the door, thank you. Have to say about marriage. So let's think out loud a little bit as we get started here and as we often do. Why do you guys think these texts like this, these verses, are so hard for us to talk about? Why do you think they're so controversial or why do you think they're so confusing? You can just go at any of those angles. Disturbed by sin. Yeah, disturbed by sin. Talked about that last week. The the curse that entered into the marriage relationship. So yeah. So many different interpretations of this. Why do y'all think there might be so many different interpretations? What? Yeah, that's part of it. The culture today sees sees this very differently. Yeah, this this text has been abused greatly. Uh, We have to be honest. This has been used to justify a lot of very painful things. What else? Why you think this is hard to talk about, why it's controversial, confusing? Yeah. We feel inadequate a lot of times, and we'll get to this in a minute. We read this, and we think of this being uh, suppressing of women or wives and their voice. But just, just so the, the ladies in the room know, for the men, <laughs> we read this, and we're like, how in the world am I supposed to love my wife as Christ loved the church? We feel this, can feel this, this weight that often leads to a deep insecurity that sadly then does lead to abuse or detachment. This hasn't been simple in our marriage. I wish Cassie actually was in here today, but she's in the nursery. So she, she shared this with many people, and she'd share this here. Uh, my wife did not grow up in a, uh, in a m- frame of mind that would e- even accept this at all. So she was the girl in high school who was carrying around uh, a feminist manifesto in her b- book bag. She was the, the girl from an early age who was out to show the world and to show any man who thought that he was smarter than her or could do better than her that this was wrong. She, she came from a background where there, there was no differentiation in male and female roles, either in the home or in the church. Those are good, God-loving people, so I don't mean that any negatively. I'm just showing you. And then she met me. So a person coming from a very traditional view of the roles of men and women in the home and in the church. But also, and this is the real catcher, a pretty passive person. right? So like, if if any of you even as a pastor in the church are doing something and I'm thinking like, man, I wish they would change that, I wish they would do that differently. Just so you know, I'm probably going to lay awake in bed for a month having anxiety over mentioning that to you. Not like just saying, hey, do this different. And then our marriage, has been really hard because even as she seeks to, to lean in to believe what God's word has to say about these things, it can be very hard for a husband who could just be like, just do whatever you want. <laughs> and so there's, there's extremes here. This is hard. This is difficult because of our personalities, because of our past. But leaning into marriage, leaning into these roles for the glory of God and the story of God as we saw last week means that we have got to continue to journey in understanding what this means if we want to be a part of this beautiful dance that God gives us in the relationship of men and women in marriage. And this is important for all of us. I know there are many of you in here who are not married right now. But as a church that is a community together that loves one another in our fight clubs, that loves one another in missional community, that loves one another in the stuff of everyday life, we all need each other to do this dance. We all need each other to pull this off. We need encouragement. We need those who are married to to give example of repentance and faithfulness to those who aren't. And we need those who aren't to encourage those who are to continue to take this seriously. To be faithful to Christ. To continue to learn the dance of the steps of kingdom marriage. So we're going to think about the wife's steps. We're going to think about the husband's steps. And then we're going to think about Jesus' steps. So first off, the wife steps in verses 22 through 24. We see the beauty of Jesus following submission. So, first of all, before we do this, we want to say this and taking it from the text what the role of a wife in this text is not. So, first off, this is very important it is not inequality. We remember this is rooted in creation and it's rooted in Christ, we're going to see. In creation, it says God created male and female both in his image. And he gave them both equally the commission to multiply and fill the earth and to exercise dominion over it all. That was given both to male and to female. So what we're talking about here, whatever we walk out of here this morning believing, I want you to hear that this is not about inequality. This is rooted in the creational pattern of God. Anybody who would want to compare... These roles as laid out in Ephesians 5 to slavery. And some people make crazy arguments like this. Well, the Bible talks about how to handle slavery, you know, and so we, if we're not going to do that. No, slavery is not rooted in creation. But the equality of male and female is. And so following on that, this is not Cultural. Well, it's rooted in creation and it's rooted in Christ. If you want to say these roles that are given in Ephesians 5 merely applied to that particular time and culture, well, then you have to say that Jesus, being head of the church, only applied at a particular time in history. Because it's not saying this is a mirror of the culture and just how the church can get along in that particular day and time. It's saying this is a picture of Christ and the church, it's not temporary. But it's also not saying that women are to be a doormat. Notice verse 21, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. It's that all of God's people within all of God's body mutually submit to one another in various ways according to the various roles and giftings that God has given them. This isn't giving the husband some sort of like you know, just trump card that whenever he's feeling a certain way, he can just walk in the door and say, hey, this is what we're doing, whether you like it or not. Also, this is not pertaining to all men. So notice that he says, wives, submit to your own husbands. Sadly, another abuse that this has been used with is that women are to submit to all men. That wives are submit to all husbands. No, it says wives submit to your own husbands. We're talking here about within the context of marriage that God has specifically and uniquely given to the world to be a picture of Christ and the church. So I want to tell, especially our, our younger girls who are in here today, do not submit to all men. Don't think that just because a man older than you or it, or your same age or younger than you says I need you to do this for me that for you to be a faithful person means you do what they say. And it's also not pertaining to all of life. Not pertaining to all of men and not pertaining to all of life is that when when you go to work, ladies, and be the CEO Be the president. This is speaking about what takes place again within marriage. This is very important because what many people try to do is because the church for so long has added on to this, has created these fences to protect what God says is that it's led to abuse. And so now everyone wants to throw the baby out with the bathwater. What it's saying is, though, is we want to frame it in view of what it's not saying, but it actually is saying something. It says in verse 22, Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. That there is this call for wives to follow the leadership of their husbands as they follow the leadership of Christ. There is no lexical or exegetical way to take the submission out of the word submit. It is a call to trust. It is a call to follow. But it is to do it as to the Lord. Because there's many days, ladies, if you're not married, if you are married, you're going to look at your husband and you're going to think, I'm smarter than him. I know better than him. And I'm supposed to follow that? And Ultimately, what you're being called here to do is follow Jesus. It's to trust God. He's called you into this pathway, into this pattern for his glory. Just as he's called the husband to submit to Christ's lordship. You see, everyone in this world to live fully human is called to submission in some place and in some way. It's usually most that reject this concept altogether that have the biggest problem with this. So wives submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. Why? Verse 23 says why. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body and himself its Savior. Now what, do we, what does it mean here when it says the head of the church? Some of you that are going to get pushed back on this, they're going to say, oh, well, head, all that means is source. All that means is, is uh, some place or some person or something that, that they receive a blessing from. That they receive sort of their identity from. But as we look in the scriptures. That although that word is used in that way. In a very limited sense. That normally it is speaking. About order. Normally it is speaking about leadership. And again the pattern is Christ in the church. Jesus is the head of the church as its leader. As its protector. And how? How? How is this to happen? Verse 24, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Now in everything, this word, it means completely. It means comprehensively. It doesn't mean in every detail. As we'll say here in a minute, it most certainly does not mean if your husband calls you to sin. Because again, your submission is to the Lord. And as the apostles stood before the religious leaders of the first century, they looked at them as those who had been called to, to, tru- to submit to all earthly authorities, and they said, what should we do, obey you or obey Christ? But there is this comprehensive willingness to follow husbands as they follow Christ. Comprehensive here means not just at certain times, not with lives divided up. You see, many people get married today, and we have to speak to this, and they think, well, marriage is going to look like I have my life, and they have their lives. And occasionally we eat supper together, or we do things together. Sadly, this is becoming very normal in our culture, is that married people just say, we're just going to kind of keep living like we were when we were dating. But the biblical pattern is that you become one flesh. And often this is harder for the man than it is for the woman. She wants to share feelings. She wants to be connected. She wants to see their lives intertwined in everything comprehensively. So we have got to develop a more robust and nuanced biblical view of, of what we're talking about when we talk about submission. Not so that I give you a list of things to do, but so that you can live in the wisdom of the gospel. In 1955, May 13th, good ha- from Housekeeping Monthly, this was the picture of what a good wife was. I'm going to read from you, from this magazine, The Good Wife's Guide. Just to, just to see some abuse here, maybe. Some of you men, boneheads like me, might want to frame it. So here's here's the good wife's guide. Have dinner ready. Plan ahead the night before to have a delicious meal ready on time for his return. That way, le- This way of letting him know that you have been thinking about him and are concerned about his needs. Most men are hungry when they get home, and the prospect of a good meal is part of the warm welcome needed. Hey, that's a good thing still to do. It's not a bad thing. What we're going to see is... Maybe, maybe the husband can cook the meal some nights and have it ready. It gets worse. <laughs> Prepare yourself. Take 15 minutes to rest so you'll be refreshed when he arrives. Touch up your makeup. Put a ribbon in your hair and be fresh looking. He's just been with a lot of work-weary people. Try to be happy and a little more interesting for him. His boring day may need a lift, and one of your duties is to provide it. Please don't punch your husband. Here's a good one. Clear away the clutter. Make one last trip through the main part of the house just before he arrives and run a dust cloth over the tables. Now remember, this was was normal at some point, I guess. June Cleaver. During the cooler months of the year, you should prepare and light a fire for him to unwind by. Your husband will feel as if he's reached a haven of rest and order, and it will give you a lift, too, after all, catering to his comfort will provide you with immense personal satisfaction. <laughs> Minimize all noise. At the time of his arrival, eliminate all noise of the washer, dryer, or vacuum, and encourage the children to be quiet. Greet him with a warm smile. Listen to him. You may have a dozen important things to tell him, but the moment of his arrival is not the time. Let him talk first, and remember his topics of conversation are more important than yours. Don't greet him with complaints and problems. Don't complain if he's late for dinner or even if he stays out all night. Count this as minor compared to what he might have went through at work. Make him comfortable. Have a cool, warm drink ready for him. Don't ask him questions about his actions or question his judgment or integrity. Remember, he is the master of the house, and as such will always exercise his will with fairness and truthfulness. You have no right to question him. A good wife always knows her place. I don't read that just to get some laughs, although it's funny. I read that because that mindset is in, warped in the lives of a lot of our culture and in the lives of the people around here. Because it takes a good thing and it makes it into an evil thing. And this is what sin does. People hear that and they want to like come up here and set this screen on fire, Right? They hear that and they say that anyone who would teach what the Bible teaches about these roles in marriage is some kind of Neanderthal, misogynistic, enabler of abuser, of abusers. Trust me, that would be said. But what we want to say is we're not going to cave to the cultural, the cultural pressure on this whether that's the culture of abuse that has been found often in those who believe these roles, or in a culture that says, forget it, we're doing it our way. We have a bigger and more beautiful vision than what Good Housekeeping 1955 wants. But if Cassie wants to do some of that, you know, knock yourself out. But we, <laughs> but we want a, a bigger and better thing. And so Kayla's in here to make her feel awkward. We're back to the Avengers. All right, when I was thinking about this this week, and I'm thinking about these stereotypical relationships of when it comes to men and women's roles, I couldn't help but think of the Black Widow and Captain America. So Captain America has this mission that he is on to accomplish. And who shows up? Who does he call? Who is the one that helps him? It's the Black Widow. Right, Kayla? Winter soldier, but she came, right? She was there. No, you can help me. <laughs> but this is what God's Word is talking about. When it's talking about this relationship between husband and wife. If, if you're a quiet personality, I don't mean this negatively. That's just as important and, and necessary as all. But I want to see it's not just that. Is It's in the Bible when it's talking about a helper, in Genesis, when it says, I'm going to create for him a helper. This this Hebrew word behind helper, ezer, if I'm pronouncing it correctly, these guys can help me. What it's talking about is not like daddy's little helper. You know, when we hear the word helper, sometimes we think of a little helper as someone who you could kind of do it without them. But if they want to come with you, then you can occasionally pat them on the head and let them stand there and hold a screwdriver and turn it after you've already really got it finished. This is not the biblical picture of a helper in creation or in Christ. A helper, the word used for helper, guess who this word is used for most often in the Old Testament? God Himself. God is the helper of His people. It's not a word of weakness, it's a word of strength. And the word suitable, a helper suitable for Him, is it saying, one that is my like opposite. One that is necessary to complete the mission that God has given us to fulfill in our marriage. It's less like this good housekeeping picture. It's more like this superhero that comes along with you and all of your giftings to help accomplish the great purposes and plan that God has given in this world. We talk often about a Proverbs 31 woman, and I wish we had time. This morning to read that whole chapter. But I want you to go read Proverbs 31 in light of this text today. This is a woman in Proverbs 31 who does maintain the household economy. But she is also a woman who is able to go out into the world. To buy. To sell. To produce. To exercise that rule and dominion we see in Genesis Genesis 2 and in Genesis 1. And it says her husband stands in the gates and praises her. I just want to encourage you ladies that when it comes to submission, when it comes to fulfilling your role, don't be pressed in some cookie cutter image of what that looked like. But let the word of God guide you into living this out through your own personality, submitted to the lordship of Christ, and following the leadership of your husband. To submit, as God's word says, voluntarily. This submission doesn't mean that that you're just made a slave in your house. You're an image bearer of God. In a verse that's often used in terms of evangelism, which really isn't an evangelistic verse, Revelation 3, so Jesus says, I stand at the door and knock. That's to the church. If husbands want to love their wives like Christ loves the church, then they want to lead. They want to stand at the door and knock. But they're not to grab their wife by the back of the head like a caveman and drag them out of the door. They're to lead them, to love them, to be vocal. It's not just voluntary, it's vocal. As Christ loves the church, does does Jesus say to the church, I just need you to be quiet. I just need you to quit talking so much. If you would just go along with what I say and shut up, then everything would be all right. Now, what does Jesus say to the church? He says, "I, I hear you. God's people are called to cry out to God. To share their voice. To speak into the situation. And the crazy thing of the gospel is, He actually listens to us. He actually hears our prayers, considers our prayers, and has ordained, ordained our prayers into the very eternal purposes of His plan. So it's voluntary submission, it's vocal submission, and it's vital submission. It is crazy for me to think that Jesus has designed that the church would be absolutely necessary in the fulfilling of his goal of making disciples of the nations. All God would have to do is snap his metaphorical finger and everyone he wanted to be saved would be saved and we would be in heaven and it would be done. But he has chosen, Jesus has chosen to look at to call for himself a bride that would be indispensable in the fulfillment of his mission. Wives, that, that's what you're leaning into here. And when you do that, you're leaning with Jesus. In Philippians chapter 2, verses 5 through 11, it says that Jesus... Submitted himself to the plan of the Father. Was willing to take the form of a servant. The Bible teaches us that the Father and the Son and the Spirit are equal. Eternally equal in value. Eternally equal in personhood. Eternally equal in worth. And to argue that either or not is in the most literal and historical sense, heresy. (laughs) And yet Jesus voluntarily submitted himself to the plan of the Father. That was not demeaning and that was not dangerous. But it was vital to the mission. And extremist feminists are those who end up being the most sexist because they say that if women are not allowed to be men, then they can't be equals. But the word of God says that there is a beautiful dance that takes place as wives voluntarily, vocally, and vitally submit to the plan of God within marriage. It's also the husband steps that we need to think about here. When we think about the husband steps, what we're thinking about is the beauty of servant leadership. Servant leadership. So just like we started with women, let's start with men. What the role of husband in this text is not, and it's so important, it's not domineering. It's not an abuser. It's not this hyper-masculinity. If this describes you what I'm about to say, then it may not apply to you. But being a a faithful, servant-leading husband, a leader as a husband, doesn't mean that you're watching UFC every day with a six-pack of beer, throwing it in, crashing it on your head, you know, and saying, Woman, get me some chips. That is not what we're talking about here. It's also not disengaged. This is very important when it comes to this. There's some some of you men in here, and I'm looking in the mirror, who you really don't have any, any probably danger of being that guy, the, the hyper-masculine guy. What you have the danger of is being the disengaged guy, the passive husband, the one who won't make any decisions, the one who is unaware of the home life. So you may be a good man, and everybody in the world says, what a good man, You know, and how how faithful he is at work and what an example, but you just don't have a clue what's going on at home, right? What grade are your kids in? I don't know. Who's your favorite teacher? I don't know. And I forgot grades four. Like I said, I'm looking in the mirror here. You're disengaged. Also distant. Never at home. Always have something more important to do out there. Or if you are at home, you're not at home. used to be you were in the paper, now you're in the iPad. It also doesn't mean that you are just a dumb provider. Homer Simpson, everybody loves Raymond, right? In our culture, right, it's sort of this, we just can't accept this as a church, that to be a man means you're just this kind of like grown-up child who walks around doing goofy stuff. And the wife has to keep everything running because you're just clueless. But hey, at least you have a job. It also doesn't mean defensive. But you're not really listening when your wife speaks. You're just waiting to respond, waiting to prove your point, just always angling to get your way. That's what it doesn't mean. What does it mean? It means you're a servant leader and Man, what a, what a lofty vision we're about to see here. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church. This is love with, with teeth. This isn't just, you know, wow, I set a, a reminder on my phone. I've got the anniversaries right with flowers. Wow, this isn't just love saying, well, you need to be thankful, at least I have a job. I could be like one of these other bums out here that don't come home and doesn't work. No, this is love that goes deeper. As Christ loved the church, and how did he love the church? He gave himself up for her. Jesus did not say, church, get me my chips. Jesus said, I will die for you. I did die for you. To provide. To protect. I'll take the harm. I'll take the burden. I'm not here to get. I'm here to give. I did not come to be served. But I came to serve. Not just financially. But I'm here to give myself for your physical, your emotional, your mental, and your spiritual well-being. You want to talk for two hours tonight? Instead of me getting to watch the ball game I wanted to watch? Then the, the TV's being turned off. I'm going to give myself for you. You want me to figure out child care so we can spend some time together? I'll do that. I'll be the one that sacrifices to make that happen. You need to make some transition in our life. Let's listen. I'll listen to you. I'll take the time to listen. You give yourself. You earn trust. By a life of self-sacrifice. So much more we could say there. But also, husbands live as servant leaders not only through their sacrificial living, but through this vision of their wife's sanctification. Notice verse 26, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of the water with the word. When we think about sanctification, we think about spiritual growth but really more directly in this text, is not just the ongoing spiritual growth, but sanctification, taking here from Ezekiel, in this old covenant perspective, was something being set apart for the Lord. It's something being made holy, and being used to its fullest potential, in the kingdom of God, and for the glory of God. This means a husband who is a servant leader, he spends as much time dreaming about his wife becoming the person that she was created to be in the image of God as he does about his own dreams being fulfilled as he lives out the fullness of his life in the image of God. cares about her spiritual growth. Verse 27, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. That Jesus has, has given his life before. He's now interceding before the Father on the church's behalf. And his goal is to see us brought safely home, presented on that final day, beautiful and spotless through his finished work. Man, in so many ways that is, we cannot imitate that. That is totally unique. But in an exemplary fashion, we are to say, I'm going to intercede for her. I'm going to pray for her. I'm going to persevere in love for her to the end. There's going to be days that she may doubt the Lord. There's going to be days that she may need me like Aaron and her held up Moses' hands just to hold her hands up as she... If she fights to live the life God's called her to live, but I'll be there. Because not only do we give ourselves for our wives and sanct- for their sanctification and to see them finish the race and the work of Christ, but we do it out of this holy self-love. Verse 28, in the same way husbands should love their wives as their own bodies, he who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes it and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. This teaching that is, as, as male and female become married, they are one. So you love your wife as you love yourself. Anyone who would want to take a scripture like this and use it to justify any type of physical, mental, verbal, emotional, or sexual abuse in marriage, it's not not God's fault. They've warped the text. They've warped the meaning. Because this is saying your, your wife's body is your body. First Corinthians, it says, and your body's her body. Just as Christ and the church are one. I remember hearing the story of a, of a great football coach, high school football coach. It's a made up story. Someone told it. And this football coach was state championship coach. He was the best that there was. And his wife was a very intelligent, very smart, capable woman, like all women are. And she had faithfully followed him in his life's goals and ambitions and dreams. She had sacrificed much to submit to this vision for their life, and they had a lot of fun, and they saw a lot of great things happen. The one cool thing about this story is they got to a certain point in their life to where he just realized that like he had never realized it before. And he started to pursue her and started to notice what she was interested in, started to notice what, what she wanted to, to explore in terms of her own gifts and talents and personality. And so as they got older and later in their life and, and their, their kids were out of home, he led her and their family in moving and him taking a job coaching at a small school where he had little to no chance to win so that she could be in a place where she was able to lean in to her gifts and personalities and talents like never before. Now I'm certainly not saying that's what God's calling us to all do in here today. But it was just this beautiful picture of this dance we're talking about. Where he led her. Where she followed in steps Again, voluntarily, vocally, and vitally. But there was this vision that it was bigger than one person's glory. So husbands, we're called to step with sacrificial love. To bear the burden. With sanctifying love. With self-love. And with servant leadership. Now someone mentioned when we got started, both... Both sides here, we hear these things, and it can be pretty overwhelming. And so we conclude with just what the king's steps are. This is verses 31 through 33. This is why we took all last week on it, because I knew there wouldn't be time to do both, is that the good news for all of us in here today is wives, you're not the star of the story. (laughs) Husbands, you're not the star of the story. None of us can bear this weight. But the good news is, Jesus has been the perfect submitter for us. The one who perfectly and fully and willingly submitted to the Father's plan to bring about the gospel that we stand in today. So wives, as you stumble to obey this, as you fall, as you quit, rest in Jesus. Run to Him and get back on the dance floor in the power of the Spirit. Husbands, take your steps, not for your own glory. Don't say, I'm going to get this right and show everybody in the world what the perfect husband's supposed to be. And don't sit here in guilt, fear, and shame saying, I blew this because I didn't show the world what this was supposed to be. Run to Jesus. Put the spotlight on Him, but get back on the dance floor in the power of the Holy Spirit. And as the world watches, they will see the beauty of the dance of marriage and the kingdom of Jesus. In a Me Too culture. In a Church Too culture. The world is looking for a picture of what it looks like for men and women to love one another in healthy ways. Jesus has told us, not only as a church, but in our marriages, that they will know that you are my disciples by the love you have for one another. Father, we thank you so much for the good news of the gospel. We confess that we are imperfect spouses, but we thank you, Jesus, that you are a perfect Savior. And as we come now to the Lord's table, may we taste and see again that it is finished. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.